Welcome to The Third Rail Entrepreneur, a podcast about enrichment. Enrichment of your mind, your relationships, your body, and ultimately your business via the entrepreneurial path. My name is Alistair MacDonald. Let's get started. Over the course of the last several weeks, a growing fissure has erupted in our Western developed communities and economies, and it seems to be pitting the liberties of the individual against the overreaching power of the state. Now, all of this, of course, is predicated on the significant imposition of new regulations, fears, and economic strains of COVID-19. And as I say, it's culminating with, most recently, riots and social gatherings, not so much riots as protestations and so forth, that individuals, certainly here in the United States, feel compressed by the imposition of various demands that are ostensibly there for their own health and safety. And as with most issues of conflict, it's my sense that this is rooted in a deeper far more underlying sense of misunderstanding, and a misunderstanding that is one of the makeup of these individual components that brought us to now. And so I want to spend some time talking about that and specifically pointing to a risk that is emerging in the background that I don't want you to be affected by. As I shared on a recent conversation, uh, another friend's podcast, my job during this phase of the half cycle shifts from profit and leverage and maximization of opportunity to where we are now, which is reduction and elimination and mitigation of risks. And so I want to share with you one that is clearly rising, and the data supports it, and we'll include links to that in the show notes, but one that I don't want you to experience, because I don't want to experience it. So to understand the situation, let's look at the individual component parts. Again, we've got crowds of people gathering, in some cases with weapons, to protest their freedoms, their right to collective gathering, to freedom of speech, and to move freely about the United States. Of course, I understand this instinct, but it is bumping up against the requirements of protection for the larger group uh, in the eyes of the medical community. So let's splice these things apart. I don't believe that it's as simple a problem meaning that I don't think it's quite so rudimentary and obvious. And this is typically the problem with most issues and sources of conflict, which are the idea that we can just lump everything together and give each other and build for ourselves this consolidated, congealed problem that is made up of important parts that need to be spliced apart in order for us to make progress. So what are those parts? As far as I can tell, and in my opinion, There are four component pieces that are forming this collective conflict and driving the narrative that I think could give some insight. These four are in order of priority and immediacy. They are, again, as I see them, medical or clinical, economic and financial, social and personal, and political or governmental. Let's walk through these four different pieces in that same order. But in doing so, 
we have to splice apart the individual incentives and basic premises, the first principles of each of these four quadrants. Medicine, of course, is there ostensibly to protect us from threats both visible and invisible, to enhance our well-being. That is the aim of anybody in that field. Economic and financial is the collective contributions and participation and trade amongst people to try to improve the standards of living for all of its participants. Social and personal is you in your community, with your patients, customers, clients, consumers, and of course, your family. The more private aspect of that. Political and governmental is really the tail of the dog that very rarely gets to wag the dog. The political is where, ostensibly, the needs of the many are imposed upon the individuals themselves. Again, much like some of the others, the goal being to progress our collective well-being. The moment that we splice these apart, we realize that there are inherent conflicts of interest. Let's look at the first two to begin. The medical and clinical world is one that is driven by data, testing, verification, and safety. Safety for anybody that is participating at any time. The ideal goal of a successful medical outcome can be considered a failure if loss is included at all. Meaning that when we look at something such as, say, submitting a new drug or therapy to the FDA for approval, that iterative process of the FDA is one that is moving simultaneously toward efficacy and impact and, in the opposite direction, minimizing risk and loss and harm. The goal of medicine is to eliminate harm to the zero point, and anything that they do that may cause more harm is implicitly considered a failure. Now, economics, of course, is very different. Economics and finance are not about maximum outcome with zero risk, whatever can be achieved with zero risk. It is the opposite. It is the seeking of a good risk-adjusted outcome. Those in economics and finance are comfortable with risk to the extent that the reward is great enough to justify it. In the medical world, group interaction in a case like this is dangerous and bad. In finance and economics, we rely on the collective and group interaction for it to succeed, for goods to trade hands as capital does in the opposite direction. In the medical world, again, it's data-driven. It must be measurable before embarking on some new protocol, drug, process, or therapy. We need data before we do anything, and that data must be rooted in the lowest possible risk that we can create. In economics, it is again the opposite. It is one built of experimentation in real time, iteration. Data is gathered as we go. The feedback loop is alive. We understand that some eggs will be broken in the making of the omelet. But in medicine, it's antithetical to best practices. In medicine, success is invisible. It's intangible. If medicine does the most profound work in history with COVID-19, we will not see, experience, touch, hold, taste, or know any of it. It will not show up in our lives. 
because it is a loss avoided. And if there's one thing I can personally bore you with stories of, is seeing people who have enjoyed a luxury of a pain not felt. They are completely blind to it. So that is success in medicine, is invisible. It's intangible. Of course, success in economics and finance is the opposite. It is visible. It is tangible. It is real. That you actually did buy that new pair of shoes. You've saved enough to buy the iPhone. You have successfully sold your products to a consumer. And for a last example, medical, when we look at the incentives for medicine, they are for elimination. The elimination of risk, of disease, of harm, of any sort of loss. That is its ultimate goal. For economics, of course, the incentives are for growth, expansion, magnification, leverage. Very, very different worlds. So when you hear or see friends, or you might, yourself might have been caught up in this sense that it is right versus wrong, or my individual rights versus governmental overreach, my friend, this is not, this is not the case. It is about a conflict of two siloed views of the world. The economists and financiers and entrepreneurs are absolutely right in that domain, and so too are the doctors. The question is trying to find the spot where one is willing to concede some things to the other, but we're doing it with one of these agents not willing to concede anything, because to concede that some people should just die to a doctor is to take away their entire motivation for getting up in the morning. Likewise, if it is about zero possible negative outcomes, then the entrepreneur might as well stay at home as well. Very different scales, very different problems, different incentives, and a very different way of approaching the world. This is important, because when we break these two things apart, we get to look at our own motivations. Which side do I fall on? How can I not be distracted by the silliness that it's about the imposition of one person's thoughts upon my own? This is a conflict of ideals and ideas. Neither are wrong. Both are wrong, <laughs> and both are right. Then there's the social and the governmental. Again, we've touched on this, but we've got individuals that are being encouraged to stay home. Well, how did this happen? Well, again, we go back to the issue, the fundamental issue, that this is a medical problem. And as things stand right now, medicine has no treatment. No treatment. And certainly no cure for this virus. So absent a cure and absent any sort of therapeutic ideas or tools, techniques, medicines that would make a difference, they are forced to lean on the only thing that remains, social distancing. The encouragement of social distancing from the medical community to the governmental overlords has resulted in our ending up at home with our loved ones. Now, this is a tricky spot too. Because government is, of course, incentivized to do whatever it is that makes the populace happy. That is how they measure success. And, of course, it can be boiled down to the fact of their own self-interest. Everybody is trying to get re-elected. I believe that a lot of people join politics because they have great intentions. But the perversion of incentives that immediately arises inside that sphere is no different than perversions of incentives that arise when we have animals and money, a racehorse and money. 
this is the same thing. Immediately we're thrust into a game where even if we don't necessarily want to do bad things, to make any progress at all in politics, we are forced to concede, sometimes concede our own principles in the service of some small nugget of passage of a law that would make just an incremental difference in our own minds. So these collisions of incentives are not just between the silos, but directly inside these four as well. So as the government does what it always does, which is show up late and close the barn door after the horse has fled. Now, as an aside, I realize that there is a very strong love for the two political parties here in the United States. And in some cases, some of the followers of these people borders on, in my opinion, deification. I don't buy that stuff. I have a fairly scathing disrespect for anybody that uh, considers themselves more capable of managing my life than I am. So you'll have to excuse my cynicism there. But we do know that government is inherently a committee. That's what it is. Governments are, by design, committees. So if you've ever sat on your HOA, for example, which I've done, I have the unfortunate title of president of my HOA. The only reason we have one is I live on a small private road that has a little bridge, and that bridge is our responsibility to take care of. So we've formed an HOA. We all basically throw in a very little amount of money every year, get together, drink wine, talk about the road and the bridge, and whatever trivial issues have emerged in the last 12 months, and we re-elect the officers. For some reason, I have the unfortunate situation of having been elected president now for too many years running. I've spent a good amount of time at every HOA meeting trying to organize a coup, but nobody's biting. The thing about HOAs, as an example of the structural issues of government, is, and you might have experienced this on any board that you've sat on, I have sat and do sit on several, we get together and we'll complain because Ray is leaving his truck out on the lawn again. That big lifted truck that he's got, he's parking on the lawn. And I don't like it because it's lowering the value of my property. And there's Jane, who's complaining about my leaving my trash out two days after the truck has been by. Another person complains that the color of their neighbor's house doesn't fit the aesthetic of the neighborhood, and on and on. So the committee gets together and says, okay, well, how can we make everyone happy? I want to stay elected. And even if I don't, I, I want happy neighbors. So what do we do? We reprimand and legislate. We punish and legislate. Ray finally gets a warning to move the lifted truck off his lawn, and I get told that I need to put my trash away the day after it's taken away, and what have you. And these become the new rules. So what do all of these things have in common? They are all dealing with things that have already happened. The very nature of collective committee-based thinking is only ever dealing with issues that have already occurred. This means that government can never truly lead. They can never truly lead. They will always be dealing with something after the fact. And if you don't believe me, just look at the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury. The extent of the cost of this COVID-19 bailout dwarfs the Great New Deal by FDR by a factor of almost 300%. A lot more than would have been spent on a proactive pandemic response team. And for what it's worth, this particular area of public health 
has been disinvested in by presidents and leaders now for almost 30 years. It's not unique to any particular political party or administration. There is an apathy that rising markets and bullish asset prices and good business do. They make everybody lazy. And we don't worry about the things that are not front and center. Epictetus famously said, full bellies make empty skulls. And so our committee gets together and patches up things that have already happened. And they do it in a way that satisfies the populace. And this is where the scrambling is going on right now. Individuals and families have been told to quarantine themselves, to do shelter in place, stay at home, make safe, and reduce any sort of connection with their outside loves, lives, friends, and community. This is extremely unhealthy. Paradoxically, one of the solutions to this medical crisis is putting people at home, in many cases, alone, disconnected from the outside world. Let's not forget, this is how we punish the worst of the worst criminals in our penal system. Isolation. There is nothing worse for a person's well-being than to be put in a steel box with nothing but their own thoughts, behaviors, and fears. So here we have the social meeting the political. In the service of taking care of the herd and their well-being, we're being asked to stay home, indoors. In many cases, parts of the country that are buried with really cold weather, harsh conditions, and no real means of getting out and getting some sunlight and community experience. This is starting to show its cost. The United Nations Secretary General just this week issued an alarming, quote, truce request for domestic violence around the world. As it turns out, domestic violence reports have increased by as much as 30% in just the last two months. This is what happens when all four of these quadrants land on you, the person, you, the mom, the dad, the mother, the father, the daughter, and the son. The average family now is looking down the barrel of 20% unemployment, asset prices that have fallen in some cases 20 to 30%, in the case of oil, over 95%. What next, they wonder, is my job secure? In the space of just the last five weeks, 16 million Americans have been let go of their jobs. The economic is starting to bump up against the medical. The medical is bumping up against the governmental. The governmental and political is pushing back and saying, maybe we overreacted. Maybe we've successfully come out of this on the other side. Why? Because the social strain is starting to tear at the fabric of our communities. This is a trend that happens during every bear market and recession anyway. Divorce rates spike. Alcoholism, drug abuse, partnership dissolutions, and so forth skyrocket in every single economic contraction. In this case, it's only made worse by virtue of the fact that we are actually in physical harm's way by putting ourselves in tight, close-knit, social community-type environments. So the husband and wife are at home, by themselves, maybe with their children. Their fears, together with the unhealthy nature of not getting to see friends and other family, is weighing on top of their financial fears about the future. Maybe one of them has lost a job. Maybe they both have. 
And as much as the extremely generous fiscal and monetary response via the unemployment insurance benefits and so forth, which eclipse anything in the history of the United States, including the massive social safety net of the New Deal in the 1930s, is certainly helpful, but it is also finite, and everybody knows this. Back on the economic front, we now have 16 million less people who can buy a house, 16 million less people who will buy an iPhone. The downstream and long-term effects of this on the broader economy cannot be ignored and shouldn't be. If you are a business owner, this is your time to really prepare for what's next. But it's the family that is really at risk here. We've already seen alcohol sales increase by some numbers I see over 20% in just the last several weeks. Individuals can't go to gyms. I can't go to jujitsu. This is an unhealthy thing. And so we're thrown back into a closed, confined space with our loved ones and nothing but our fears and a very simple, trapped lifestyle. What is it that we can do? Well, as you know by now, I have an instinct to speak about the economic, financial, social implications. In this case, I want to speak specifically to this, the risk of familial and relational poor health. What do we do? Many years ago, I heard an Irish pastor wedding two beautiful young people, and he said something that struck me like a punch in the chest. It wasn't really noticed by anybody else. It just passed right by. And it was toward the end of the service when he said, blah, 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 etc. you, uh, Jack and Jane, basically sign off and endorse and blah, 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 as you go out to live your separate lives together. And he kept speaking. And as I say, it was, it was like a punch in the chest. It was such a powerful but simple description of what a healthy relationship should be, that we live our separate lives together. What the imposition of quarantine and shelter-in-place and stay-home orders and so forth have done is they have eliminated that individual life, and all that remains is that we are living together. It is my adamant, adamant belief on my own personal experience and those of my loved ones and friends and clients over the years that in order for you to be a great partner and a healthy parent and healthy spouse, you have to be a healthy individual. You must put your own oxygen mask on first. You need to carve out space for yourself and your loved ones to have their own time to reflect, to be outside, to be alone, to connect with their friends. If there is any encouragement I can make, it's not just to jump on a Zoom call with 10 friends and your spouse and have a glass of wine, though I think that that's wonderful, and more signs of social ingenuity, and to use Khalil Gibran's term, is life yearning for itself. But I encourage you to go further, to really create space for each other and yourself. Take it in turns to get out the house. Maybe somebody gets an individual spot in the home that is theirs for the day. Encourage your spouse, yourself, your kids to spend time alone with their friends. doesn't necessarily have to be on a video call, but just connecting to others. Get outside. Regardless of the conditions, get outside and move. If there is one magic trick I can share with you today, 
It is that if you are having hard times, if you are trying to negotiate a tough or tricky thing with a loved one, or a business partner, or an employee, or anybody that matters in your life, do it while walking. There is something so powerful about walking with someone to cover a complicated issue. Maybe while you're discussing your finances, or trying to protect your spouse from the uncertainty that you feel as the primary income provider, a feeling that I've experienced many times. You have something complicated to bring up. Do it while walking. Take a hike together. There is something about both being aligned, facing the same direction. Our energy is in the momentum. We are covering ground, and we are simultaneously moving together. It's like a magic trick, and I don't mean to put too much on it, but I can promise you that my hard conversations improved 100% when I started making them happen while I walked. Friends and partners know that this is true of me. I've forced this on them over the years too. And I must report with similar results. So, that is my call to you. Observe where all four of these things are coming down on you. The needs of your children to both have time with you and time without you. The needs of your community to feel protected by you while simultaneously supporting your economic interests. The needs that you have to secure your own financial and economic well-being. This all comes back to us. Our business will only be as healthy as we are. Our team will only be as vibrant as we are. Our children, our loved ones, our friends, family and community can only benefit from us if we are in a good space. Protect your well-being. Start with your attention and your time. Don't give it to anybody that is not worthy of it. Certainly don't give it to those that are jumping up and down, screaming in discontent because they don't understand that they're trying to solve four different problems with just one hammer. Free up your mind. Free each other from the obligations and burdens of being on top of each other all day. I think, in this environment, it's the most loving thing you can do. That's it for this episode. Thanks for being here. Hey. There's only two things that you have in your life, your time and your attention, that you've given both to me for these few minutes of today means everything. Cheers.